stay connected. Sign up for our newsletter. Go beyond your favorite Voice America shows. Visit iradioblog.com. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. We're about to inspire you with the stories of real people. Welcome to A Current Life with your host, Jimmy Gould. In the next hour, you will meet one of the most interesting and successful people in the world. Listen as Jimmy gets their real story of success, both the highs and the lows. We hope that you take with you some of the ideas we will share today and embrace your own journey. Now, here's Jimmy. Welcome to another edition of A Current Life. I'm your host, Jimmy Gould, and I'm very excited and honored to introduce to you a man that I consider the number one broadcaster in the world, Bob Costas, broadcaster with NBC and Major League Baseball Network. Bob, welcome to A Current Life. Thanks, Jimmy. I appreciate your making the time and your busy schedule to join us today. I know uh, you and I have kind of been connected indirectly throughout at least the 30 years of sports entertainment business that I've been a part of and share a lot of mutual friends like Chris Collinsworth and even some business people like Tom Holly from St. Louis. So mm-hmm. I appreciate uh, your making the time. And this show is really, a, a current life is really about kind of the journey uh, to success, whatever someone terms that. And it talks about the trials and tribulations and what people go through to get there. So we always uh, take a moment. I want to tell our audience, uh, I know they've watched you throughout the many years you've been doing this, that you've been with NBC Sports since 1979, and you've covered nearly every major sport, including the Olympic Games, the Kentucky Derby, Kentucky Oaks, the World Series, Super Bowls, the U.S. Open Golf Tournament. You've won 22 Emmy Awards, 18 for Outstanding Sports Host and Play-by-Play, two for Writing, one for Late Night Interview Show, uh, later with Bob Costas on NBC and one for featured reporting. And you've been named National Sportscaster of the Year eight times by your pairs. Uh, congratulations on that. It's been a fabulous, fabulous career, and I've enjoyed watching you over the years and learning from you. Well, having heard all that, I might as well just quit right now. That's enough, isn't it? <laughs> well, it's quite a, quite a journey. So we're going to go back now and kind of look back on your life. And we always start with the early years. I've had some very interesting guests since this show was unveiled, and it runs in 187 countries around the world. And and we've had a lot of fun with it, learning about uh, the people and how they kind of got where they got to. So I want to start off by asking you what you were like as a little boy growing up on Long Island in New York. Well, I was interested in sports and interested in what was on television, and uh, there were fewer choices then. Uh, four or five channels instead of the multitude that you have uh, now. Uh, like a lot of kids, you know, Batman, Superman, uh, the Yankees and uh, the Knicks and the Giants, because I grew up on Long Island in New York later, uh, the Jets and the Mets and other teams that, that came into existence. But when I was following sports, 
I also was enchanted by the broadcasters, and at that time especially, there were so many classic broadcasters in and around New York, uh, the kind of broadcasters who weren't just informative, but they had almost lyrical styles and uh, very distinctive deliveries and voices that kind of drew you in. It wasn't just the game, it was the way those games that were presented, especially on the radio, that drew you in. So I remember being interested in it from the time that I was six, seven, eight years old. Was there a particular broadcaster that sticks out, one or two of them, that really inspired you? Well, by the time I was old enough to remember or or to recall any of this, uh, the Dodgers had moved west. But I got to hear Vin Scully some when I was nine or ten years old, spent time in Los Angeles. And Vin Scully and kind of the in addition to lyrical, almost melodic sound of his voice calling a baseball game, always impressed me very much. I very much liked Jim McKay uh, in the wide world of sports days and his sure. Olympic hosting. Uh, Jack Whitaker uh, on ABC and CBS both. Um, Marty Glickman was the voice of the Knicks before uh, Marv Albert. Marv was a protege of his, and, and Marty had a great combination of authority but also almost boyish enthusiasm. Uh, and I'm leaving a lot of really good broadcasters out. Mel Allen, Red Barber, Lindsey Nelson, people like that. And there are many others. Um, those who were able to transmit some sense that, yes, they enjoyed sports very much and they were engaged in the event that they were broadcasting, but you also got some sense, either directly or by implication, that these people had lives beyond sports. They had a frame of reference beyond sports. They had some respect for and command of the language, some understanding of what it was to tell stories and, and weave a narrative thread through an event and connect it to other things in the, in the history of the sport, what was going on around that game. It was the people that had that kind of fuller palette that I, that I uh, admired most. You know, I remember... Uh because I was such a huge baseball fan. I grew up wanting to be a baseball pitcher. It was one of my passions, that and making motion pictures. And um, I remember sitting, I forget if it was the sixth grade or the fifth grade in school, and I had my radio tucked in my ear and I wasn't supposed to be listening to it when the Pirates won the, the famous game. I think it was a Mazeroski that hit the home run. Yeah, 1960. And the announcers really brought it to life because, you know, in those days, as you said, you know, radio was, was a fixture. And, and, and really the connection of the voice and of the excitement and the energy, I mean, you've made some great calls. I mean, I've, I've read your book and I've gone through so many pieces of information about some of the great moments, and we're going to talk about that later in the show. But it's really the, the bringing to life the story of what's going on in front of you, isn't it? Yeah, that's the idea. And the guys who started out in radio and later shifted to television, I think were often very effective simply because they had to pair back uh, for television. But they learned their descriptive skills and their narrative skills uh, and their attention to detail from radio, which is really the greater test for a broadcaster. So on radio, in effect, you're painting the entire picture. On television, it's your job if you're doing a live event. Uh, to put an appropriate caption beneath a picture that already exists. I think those who cut their teeth in radio are better able to do that than those who grew up only 
immersed in television and didn't fully develop the range as a broadcaster necessary uh, to truly describe and capture a scene. When those broadcasters move from television to radio, there's a tremendous fall off usually. Well, you know, because I, I think the visual, uh, I, I have a lot of friends who were purists growing up, uh, you know, on baseball with the Reds uh, in Crosley Field in the original days. And uh, my friends today, who uh, you know some of them, like Larry and, and, and Rick Steiner, some of the Broadway producers that we've done our plays with, they, they listen to the game on radio while they're watching it at the ballpark. Um, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's unbelievable. And as you look around, you see, I think it's obviously mostly an older generation, but uh, I find it fascinating because, you know, they're really uh, tuned in and are used to that and grew up on that, and I think you're right about it. I think that, you know, you've captured a whole way of telling a story, and and as we talk further, I kind of want to know what was uh, maybe a moment back in your childhood or when you were younger growing up. Was there a particular sport that you were particularly in love with? Because obviously you have such a passion for, for, for baseball, and you're, you do a lot of football now and uh, the Olympics, obviously. Was baseball your favorite sport growing up? Baseball has always been my favorite sport. Uh, there are things about the sport, its history, the texture of the sport, the pace and rhythm of it. I think sometimes in modern baseball that appealing leisurely pace has become a maddening lethargic pace, but Baseball's true pace is is one that I think is uh, appealing to a certain type of person, at least it is to me, and it's it's the right um, the right sport for a certain kind of broadcaster, the broadcaster who yes can impart what's happening moment to moment, play by play, but also um, can weave in elements of the game's history, conversational aspects with his partner, a little bit of humor, a little bit of an anecdotal aspect. It just opens up all those opportunities if the broadcaster is good enough and inclined to use those opportunities. So did you play sports at all when you were yeah, younger? Yeah, like every, like every kid, I played just about every sport in the street or in the sandlot um, and, you know, and organized baseball through my high school days and um, was the last man cut from my high school basketball team. No <laughs> one could shoot the ball better than me on the team. The problem was that to get me into position to shoot, I needed about a triple screen because I couldn't shoot over anybody. I, I, had, I had serious size issues when it came to basketball, but my actual skills were better than most of the guys on the team. But I, I, got, I got cut at the last minute, which uh, was a heartbreak I shook off pretty quickly. Well, you know, it's funny. I, I was very short as well, and, and when I was going through the early stages of basketball, I kind of shot up a little bit as I got a little bit older. And I have a son who's 15, who's six foot seven, and he he keeps asking me every day. He says, you know, who's my father? Because you know, it's kind of like, you know, at six seven today, I think all the entire generations are just getting taller and taller. I don't know if it's in the water or if it's the food or the what, but. Don't the athletes just seem bigger? And well, I'm not they, talking they about do. the let's, steroid let's just stuff. Hope, just let's, let's just hope that in your case, the mailman or the milkman is a six-seven, because that would give greater credence to your boys' questions. <laughs> I told him it's me because I said I'm six-two now, and I said that our generation six-two was big. Very so, big. You know, I was I was a great shot too because you had to be a good shooter if the guys were a lot bigger than you. Let me ask you. So as you as you attended Syracuse. 
uh, in New York. You majored in communications, so you, you knew early on what you wanted to do with your life. Uh, uh, what was it that actually drew you to the broadcasting and the media industry? Well, I knew that if I was ever going to get into Yankee Stadium uh, without paying for the ticket, it would probably be <laughs> as a successor to Mel Allen rather than as a successor to Mickey Mantle. So my interest in both sports and broadcasting kind of converged, and Syracuse was one of the first universities to have a legitimate communications program, not just a print journalism program, which many of them had for many years, but a true broadcasting program. Uh, now almost every university worth its soul has one, but then there were only a handful that had credible programs, and Syracuse was at or near the top of that list. And I knew that from my guidance counselors in high school, and I also had read that both Marty Glickman and Marv Albert, who were excellent broadcasters in the New York sure. area, who I listened to faithfully growing up, they had both gone to Syracuse. So that was enough for me, and that's where I went, and it was an excellent experience, both academically and also the hands-on experience I got uh, broadcasting on the campus stations. Well, was your family supportive of your career path, and I guess were you pressured to try to choose something else that was maybe more traditional? No, I wasn't terribly pressured. Uh, I remember my father saying to me, if this doesn't pan out, you're going to want to have some fallback. And both my mom and dad thought that I might do well if I studied law, and that was certainly something that I thought about. Um, but things began to break my way, luckily for me, pretty quickly, although I'd be embarrassed to have uh, any of the cassette tapes that might be at the bottom of a box in the attic someplace <laughs> played from... 1970, when I was an 18-year-old freshman at Syracuse, still, even then, it seemed like I had at least a little bit of a knack for it. At least that's what people told me, and that knack could be developed. So I had reason to believe, be encouraged that I would at least have a shot at having a career. And by the time I was a senior at Syracuse, uh, I had gotten a job broadcasting minor league hockey uh, on a commercial station in Syracuse as well as doing weekend TV sports and filling in on other programs. So I got a, a pretty good head start, and I had reason to believe that I might be able to make a career of it, and then after that things began to fall in place um, in St. Louis at KMOX and then after that at NBC. So I never had any occasion other than summer jobs when I was in high school and college. I've never had any occasion to pursue anything but broadcasting. Well, I appreciate all that. It's time for us to take a short break. This is Jimmy Gould with my special guest, Bob Costas, and you're listening to A Current Life, brought to you by Smartwater, Wild Things Gear, and at Space Mall Networks. Stay tuned. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. At Wild Things, we've been making alpine clothing and packs right here in the USA since 1981. In fact, we began by stitching together extremely light climbing gear that guys on the mountain were trying to make on their own. It was a big deal in 1981, making Wild Things the gear of choice for some of the world's most demanding alpine climbers. Of course, the climbs and the climbers are now the stuff of legend. Inspiration for the next group to realize the freedom of moving over rock and ice in a fast and light way. The rest, three decades of elation, misery, epics, and near misses, we put back into everything we make. Light, durable, functional, packable. 
Wild Things gear is made and tested by those who live in it. Available exclusively at wildthingsgear.com. Stay wild. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to A Current Life with Jimmy Gould. If you have a question or comment for Jimmy or his guest today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd like to send an email, the address is acurrentlife at yahoo.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to Current Life. This is your host, Jimmy Gould, and today I have a very special guest here with me, Bob Costas. Uh, in the last segment, we really were talking about your early years, and I, uh, there was a question uh, that actually was emailed to me by Bill from Kansas City, and he asked me to ask you, you know, you climbed to the top of a tough industry, which most people don't make uh, make it in. And, um, you know, what were was there a particular changing life-changing opportunity, something maybe that you went through that either could have been a deterrent or something that really gave you a boost that made a difference in your yeah, life? Other than finding the incriminating photos of the network executives <laughs> when I was just a young man and then parlaying that to my advantage in subsequent negotiations, I have no idea why it turned out as well as it did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you got you still got that box of pictures laid somewhere around the house. Yeah, you you can always pull them out in a moment of need. <laughs> the uh, well, your professional career started at uh, WSYR TV and radio in 1973, and while you were mm-hmm. in school at Syracuse, uh, how did that start? How did you get your foot in the door at such a young age? That's a question we're asked all the time because this show is really about the the journey and people always want to know how they can get started. Well, a very good friend of mine who resides in your neck of the woods in Cincinnati and was himself for many years a very good broadcaster, a guy named Andy McWilliams, was a few years ahead of me in college at Syracuse. And he was doing the Syracuse Blazers of the old Eastern Hockey League on the radio um, and then got a job in Cincinnati on WLW, big 50,000-watt station there, broadcasting the old World Hockey Association team in Cincinnati. And he got this job, which he richly deserved because he was terrific at what he did. He got this job only about a week or two before the start of the 1973-74 season. So as he's packing up his stuff to take off for his big opportunity, he calls me and says, you know, I think I can get you the job here in Syracuse because they don't have much time to be looking around, and I'll recommend you, and we'll see what happens. And I say, Andy, you know that while I would love to have this job, I have absolutely no hockey broadcasting experience. I mean none, not even on the campus station. And he said, well, you know, do what you can. So (laughs) I took a tape of a game I had done between Syracuse and Rutgers a couple of years prior, I think when I was a sophomore at Syracuse, um, on the campus station. And I took this tape down to the office of the general manager of WSYR and said, look, I just don't happen to have any hockey tapes available right now, which technically was not a lie the way I phrased it. I don't have any hockey tapes available right now, but I can do hockey at least as well as I do basketball. And I had my fingers crossed hoping that that would be true if they hired me. And the guy listened to the tape, and he hired me. 30 bucks a game and $5 a day meal money on the road. And this was the old Eastern Hockey League, the actual league that the Paul Newman movie Slapshot 
is based on. In fact, I knew many of the guys who were extras in the movie and could recognize some of the characters in the movie and the players in the league that they were based on. So we rode the buses from Syracuse to Johnstown, Pennsylvania, to Lewiston, Maine, to various places, long bus trips, never staying in a hotel, leave at dawn, stop at some greasy spoon for lunch, get to the arena, play the game, get right back on the bus, and I'd be writing term papers and studying for finals uh, in between studying the rosters of these teams. And I became reasonably good at it, uh, but that was my first job. And after I did uh, okay broadcasting the hockey games, then the station, which was a combined radio and television operation, began to use me on the television side uh, on the weekend sports and occasionally filling in on the weather and other things. And, you know, it was kind of a, a quick jack-of-all-trades broadcasting tutorial. Well, I remember Andy actually. Uh, where is he now? Andy um, is in is in Cincinnati. Uh, he was a terrific broadcaster. Did Xavier basketball. Did a lot of hockey. Uh, did some filling in on the Reds. And did some broadcasts around Bengals games, pre and post game stuff. And then developed some polyps on his throat, which effectively ended his broadcasting career. So now he's in business in the Cincinnati area. Has a beautiful family, and I, I stay in touch with him. But uh, he was a tremendous broadcaster, and as it happened, a tremendous help to me in my career. It's interesting. Uh, let me ask you, with that in mind, did you ever dream that your face and name would one day become just as well-known and recognizable as the people in the careers that you were covering? Oh, no. My hope was that someday I would be one of the radio voices of a Major League Baseball team, and then maybe in the off season do some football or college basketball or NBA basketball, if it worked out that way. My thought was about radio. If I had any preference at all, it would have been that if someday I could have landed in the big leagues, it would have been with a team that had some sort of history and tradition to it so that there was more of a texture to broadcasting those teams' games than some team that was an expansion team and played in a dome on artificial turf. But other than that, um, you know, I had, I had no greater aspirations than that. And if you ask me, those are terrific aspirations. Some of the best broadcasters in the business then and now are local baseball announcers who ply their trade on radio or occasionally swing over to the television side, and they still do terrific work. And that's what I geared myself toward doing. And it just so happened that various twists and turns and things fell in place as they did. And I wound up not only on television rather than radio, but primarily hosting rather than doing play-by-play. I mean, I've done my share of play-by-play, NBA, and a lot of baseball on the TV side, but I think people probably know me best for the hosting stuff now. Well, the, the one thing that I've taken away from watching you as much as I have over, over my career is I have this great sense that you're a purist about the sport, particularly baseball. And there probably, I know I've read a lot of things where, you know, about the wild card games and the different things like that. I mean, when you have a love for a sport like you have, it's hard to adapt to new changes because it, it kind of affects everything that happened before. Don't you believe that? Well, that's true to an extent, although for years and years, I've actually been mischaracterized as a purist or traditionalist. I don't mind that if people are saying that I have an appreciation for the unique nature of baseball Mm -hmm. or the importance of its history and 
nostalgia, although you shouldn't be wedded to nostalgia. Nostalgia and romance plays a larger part in the appeal of baseball than it does other sports. So I think someone who really knows the game and is going to report on the game needs to have an appreciation of those things. But you can't be wedded to them perpetually. So I have no problem with baseball changing, but baseball ought to be very careful that it chooses from among the available alternatives. It isn't just or shouldn't be just a choice between here's what we're going to do, and if you don't agree with it, you're a hidebound traditionalist. Well, wait a minute. If we're going to change, aren't there four or five alternatives? Shouldn't we talk about how we should best approach this? So while I did uh, have difficulty with the wild card when it was first instituted, my primary um, disagreement wasn't that it changed things, but that the way it changed it diminished the importance of the regular season and the drama of a close pennant race. Because as long as you have the wild card as a fallback, if you come to the final weekend of the season and two teams that previously would be neck and neck in a breathtaking epic pennant race are the two best teams in the league and the other one's going to get the wild card anyway, and there's almost no difference entering the playoffs between being the wild card and being the best team in the league, right there you've undercut the whole meaning of a long season. And anyone who knows baseball knows that Winning the pennant or winning the division is a different thing than merely qualifying for the playoffs in other sports. Now, they've tried to address that by adding another wildcard team beginning next year. So they'll have a quick knockout round between the two wildcards. So that will increase the difference between being the wildcard and winning the division. But again, it's a, careful, a, a case of be careful what you wish for. Because yeah, if that had I... been in place this year then that wild, crazy, wonderful last day and night of the season would not have taken place. Exactly. On the other hand, in some years, the presence of the wild card, if those ties or near ties had been for division races rather than wild card slots, then the presence of the wild card would have undermined the drama of that. That was the point that I'd been making all along. Either people were too dim-witted, too cynical or too inattentive to make the distinction between that and somebody who's just such a traditionalist that they object to change no matter what form the change takes. And at the same time, I advocated long before they put it into, into play, I advocated interleague play, I've advocated the use and expansion of instant replay, I gave them a different idea for how to realign, at least I suggested it, for how to realign the divisions, and what I suggested more than a decade ago they're doing now by moving Houston to the American League West. So to call me up and down the line a purist really isn't accurate. Yeah, I think it's probably more that it, it, it's, uh, to me, it's not a negative term. It's really uh, for the love of the game. And yeah. I really, I get that from you when I'm watching you. I, I, I believe that your dedication goes to what's best for the game. And, I hope so. You know, and I, and I think your fans, I think the people that watch you feel that. Let me ask you, I, I know when uh, we'll go through this segment and the next, but I want to ask you particularly uh, one of uh, really who was, were some of the, your favorite people that, that you worked with or, or, or the careers that you've covered, and in particular what it was like uh, regarding Mickey Mantle. Well, I never crossed paths with Mickey Mantle until well after he had finished playing. His last year in the big leagues was 1968. I don't think I met Mickey until sometime in, well, I met him in passing in the 1970s, I think, one time. But I, I never really got to know him at all until sometime in the 1980s. But for whatever reason, he felt comfortable with me, and we became friendly. And I saw um, many of 
the sad and, and flawed aspects of his life. There was an element of, of tragedy and sadness and poignancy that surrounded him, some of which you could sense from a distance even when he was playing, uh, and a lot of it became more apparent in his post-career days, and the closer you were to him, the more you saw uh, the whole picture. Um, I retained an appreciation and fondness for what he meant as a baseball figure to a kid growing up in that era in the 50s and 60s, but I never had any illusions uh, about him being the all-American boy or the perfect embodiment of every ideal that you'd be striving for. He was a deeply, deeply flawed person, but he also had appealing and redeeming qualities beyond his ability to hit a baseball a mile and run like a deer before his, his body betrayed him. He had, he had some redeeming qualities uh, and moving qualities as a person. That's part of what made it so fascinating that uh, he was not the figure on a Wheaties box, but neither was he uh, the reprobate and, uh, and drunk that cynics um, portrayed him at as that was an aspect of who he was, but it was not necessarily the defining aspect. He was many things, and there was, there was much texture to the mosaic, and, and I think that I got about as good a look at it as, as anybody did, at least in the last chapters of his life. Well, when we come back, I do want to talk about one of your more memorable broadcasts, uh, uh, June 23, 1984, the sure. Sandberg game. And we're going to take a short break. This is Jimmy Gould with my special guest, Bob Costas. Stay tuned. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. At Wild Things, we've been making alpine clothing and packs right here in the USA since 1981. In fact... We began by stitching together extremely light climbing gear that guys on the mountain were trying to make on their own. It was a big deal in 1981, making Wild Things the gear of choice for some of the world's most demanding alpine climbers. Of course, the climbs and the climbers are now the stuff of legend. Inspiration for the next group to realize the freedom of moving over rock and ice in a fast and light way. The rest, three decades of elation, Misery, epics, and near misses, we put back into everything we make. Light, durable, functional, packable. Wild Things gear is made and tested by those who live in it. Available exclusively at wildthingsgear.com. Stay wild. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to A Current Life with Jimmy Gould. If you have a question or comment for Jimmy or his guest today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd like to send an email, the address is acurrentlife at yahoo.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to Current Life. I'm here with my special guest, Bob Costas. Uh, Bob, I want to talk about... June 23, 1984, uh, which I guess goes down in baseball lore as the Sandberg game, which you uh, broadcast. 
Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, as a regular season game, I can't remember many that could compare with it. Uh, like most things, context is an important part of it. So the game is played at Wrigley Field. It's the Cardinals and the Cubs. And whenever the Cubs play in St. Louis, there are large numbers of Chicago fans there. And when the Cardinals come to Wrigley Field, you'll see a lot of red in the stands as well. So you had that element, the element of the rivalry. It's a friendlier rivalry. It doesn't have the bitter edge that Yankees, Red Sox, and some others do. But it is a rivalry nonetheless. It was a Saturday afternoon and a beautiful day. It was the Saturday baseball game of the week back in a time when that meant something different, before the explosion of cable TV and the availability of baseball on television every time you turned around. In many parts of the country, that was the one game you got. It was truly the game of the week. Or apart from your local team, it was the only game that you would see outside your own city that week. So that gave it a special feeling and a special cachet. Uh, For me... It was the beginning uh, of my career as a baseball announcer at NBC. I began doing games on a regular basis a few years earlier. Uh, I was paired with Tony Kubek, who already Mm -hmm. was a a major figure, both from his days on pennant-winning Yankee teams and having worked with Kurt Gowdy and Joe Garagiola for years on NBC. So all those elements were in place. And this game unfolds, and the Cardinals take a 9-3 lead, and the Cubs inch back, inch back, and they cut it to 9-8 going to the bottom of the ninth. And Bruce Souter comes on uh, for the Cardinals. Actually, he'd come on earlier in the game. This was a different era in baseball where your closer might come in in the seventh inning, not just in the ninth, and, exactly. and Souter did. So, so he was in for a long stint. And up comes Ryan Sandberg, who already had three hits in the game. And at that point, Sandberg was a terrific young player who was establishing himself as a major star. So he homers into the left center field bleachers and ties the game off Souter, who then was baseball's best reliever, nearly invincible. Now the game is 9-9. It continues into extra innings, and the Cardinals take an 11-9 lead when Willie McGee doubles home a couple of runs, and that gives him the cycle. So Willie McGee is hit for the cycle. Sandberg has four hits and a game-tying homer. Ozzie Smith has made a bunch of eye-popping plays. The Cubs have come back from down 9-3 to send it to extra innings. Now they're down 11-9, and with two outs and nobody on, Bob Dernier draws a walk on a close 3-2 pitch, and up comes Sandberg again, and Suter's still pitching, and what does he do? He homers again almost to the same spot. The same fan might have caught both balls. (laughs) Now he's tied the game again 11-11. The movie The Natural had just come out that Um. summer. And I remember saying, either as Sandberg rounded the bases or shortly after he got to the dugout, that's the real Roy Hobbs. That's um, the natural. Here's the guy who must have made some kind of deal with somebody, sold his soul somewhere. I realize that's and he wasn't not for the natural. Home runs, some, sort, right? some sort of mythical baseball thing <laughs> must have happened with this guy because he's living a dream right here. So, and eventually the Cubs won the game, uh, twelve to eleven, and everybody was buzzing about that game. Uh, not just the days after, but even years after. I'd be walking down the street in Chicago. And a cab driver or somebody would roll down the window, and they'd just yell out, Bob. And you'd turn to look, and they'd just say, the Sandberg game. That was the only code they needed. They didn't have to describe anything, anything else. The Sandberg game. And you knew what they were talking about, and you knew that there was a shared experience. And at that moment, Ryan Sandberg became the front runner for the MVP award. 
and he did, in fact, win the MVP award that year. And it was all part of a magical season for the Cubs, who you know, had been down in the dumps as they usually were, and then all of a sudden came out of nowhere uh, and won the division and went to the playoffs that year. And they hadn't been there since 1945, right? I think. Yeah, I think, that, I think that's true. In 69, they blew a big lead to right. the Mets. Yeah, so they got to the, to the playoffs, and then naturally, in true Cub fashion, had a two-games-to-none lead in a best-of-five series against San Diego, only to watch it kind of slip away. So let me ask you, I, 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 uh, I heard that uh, you had a side bet with someone I knew, Kirby Puckett, and that involved uh, the birth of your son. Is yeah, that true? in spring training, 1986, I was having lunch with Kirby, who was a terrific friend of mine and a lovable guy, despite, lovable. T- despite some missteps late in his life. Um, <laughs> overall, his life was a worthy one, and he, and he touched the lives of many other people in a positive way and put smiles on a lot of people's faces. And so anyway, Kirby and I are, are having lunch, and, and my wife is there, and she's quite obviously pregnant. And he says, jokingly, do you know if it's a boy or a girl? And we say, no, uh, we don't want to know until the birth. We're not going to find out. He says, well, have you picked out names? And we said, well, we're tinkering with a few, but we haven't made any decisions. And he says, well, how about Kirby? It works for a boy or a girl. And I say, you know, tongue-in-cheek, I'll tell you what, Kirby. If you're batting three fifty when this child is born, we'll name him or her after you. Now, at that point, I think the highest he'd ever hit in his then-young career was like two ninety six. <laughs> now, how do I know? <laughs> that at the time that the child was due, admittedly it was early season, due in mid-May, that he would be hitting around 400. Unreal. And in fact, although he tailed off a little bit by the time the child was born, he was still well above 350. So what do I do? Uh, we certainly weren't, weren't going to name the boy Kirby, as it turned <laughs> out, but we had to make good on the bet. So we gave him two middle names, and his official birth certificate name is... Keith Michael Kirby Costa. <laughs> that's great. He, he Kirby was a terrific guy. Uh, it, it, uh, that's a great story. Let me move to a more current note. Uh, um, um, the world is obviously following with a great intensity right now. The, the story at Penn State and the story at Syracuse, and of course the uh, a number of issues like that 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 are always difficult issues to deal with. Uh, you had uh, 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 the interview with Jerry and with his lawyer, with Jerry Sandusky. Uh, I want to ask you about it, because really, uh, there were two points in the interview that really, I think, not just shook me, but shook so many people. And that was, uh, first, when you asked Jerry, are you innocent? And he hesitated and said, well, you know, it took a while before trying to defend his actions. And the second time when you asked him if he was sexually attracted to young boys, and instead of giving you a yes or no answer, he said he enjoyed young people. I think the the world. I mean, everybody watching that was just blown away. And and I really, I was looking at you at the time, and you were stone faced. You were. Mm-hmm. It was like you know. And I really want to understand. And I asked a similar question of Leslie Stahl once when she was on this show. What was going through your mind? Number one and number two. What was your what was your reaction at that that time? Well, primarily what was going through my mind was trying to listen intently to what he said and how he said it, and then think about what the next question might be. I didn't want to be locked into a list of questions. I wanted to respond to what he said. 
And so I was just trying to approach it as professionally as I could. And if I thought about my own reaction at all, the thought I had was that if I betrayed any reaction, that it would only undermine the effectiveness of the interview. My job there, I knew it was compelling subject matter. Um, My job was to ask the right questions, at least we hope, and then allow the audience to draw its own conclusions based not only on the content of his answers, but the way he provided that content, how he sounded, um, how he framed his responses. And I think the audience could draw its own conclusions without any cues from me. If I had betrayed um, disgust or uh, some sort of body language that indicated I didn't believe him or whatever, um, I think that would have just taken attention away from what people should have been bearing down on, which was him and his responses. Um, So when people said, geez, how could you hold your own reaction in check? It really wasn't that difficult. And that's, I think, what a professional is supposed to do in that situation. Well, I think that's the question, is how do you separate your emotions from your professional obligations? Because you did an amazing job. You, you did a spectacular job at that interview. And, and, and you know, it, it was a, a lingering reaction that I'm sure everyone had as to, I can't believe what I just heard. Or yeah. I, couldn't, I, I can't believe that, you know, that, that uh, what he said. And, 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 and there was an immediate emotional reaction that I had watching it. And you were so perfect because you didn't interfere with what was going on. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was just so, uh, just so unbelievable. But how do you do that? How do you do that? I guess the answer is if you've done this for a while, you should develop some measure of craftsmanship. And the truth is that I was not as emotional or visceral about it as many of the people watching because I was trying to do a professional job, and that's what I was focused on. Um, I think the questions reflected skepticism, um, maybe even incredulity uh, at some points. But whatever, whatever I might have been feeling as a dad or as a, a, an individual person, that was not getting in the way. That was way, way on on the back burner, as I think it should have been. Well, let me ask, uh, first of all, you were terrific in that, and and it it said so much. I want to ask another note, being from Cincinnati. uh, We all have our views of the world, and and I've known Pete Rose a long time. I'd like to ask you what your feelings, what your opinions are regarding Pete Rose and the Hall of Fame. My feeling on this has been the same for a long, long time. I think that Pete should be on the Hall of Fame ballot. And I think the voters should be allowed to make their decision. I think it's foolish for them to say, well, his period of eligibility has expired because he was never on the ballot. So the clock should begin ticking from the moment they put him on the ballot and the the voters can decide if obvious steroid guys, some of them admitted, others obvious by circumstantial evidence are at least on the ballot. Why shouldn't Pete be on the ballot? I've asked. Bud Selig directly, and he kind of sidesteps this one. I put it this way. Do you think that Pete Rose hurt the game of baseball as much as the most successful and prominent steroid users did? The answer to that is obvious. And none of that downplays the seriousness of Pete's offense. 
He did a really bad thing in a baseball context, and he deserved to be banned from the game, and he lied about it for a long time, and he's been punished severely. But at some point, justice has to be tempered by mercy. He lost his career in the game, and with it, millions of dollars. He lost his reputation. The day he dies, the fact that he was banned from baseball is in the first paragraph of his obituary, despite the 2,000-plus hits. But all of those hits came before any of the alleged offenses. He was never getting in the Hall of Fame as a manager. So to me, it's a very simple distinction. He can remain banned from baseball if they want, can't draw a paycheck from the game. But as a matter of history, he's one of the most important historical figures in baseball history. And let the voters consider him. I don't know if he'll get in or not, but put him on the ballot. And if I were a voter, which I'm not because only baseball writers vote, broadcasters don't, But if I were a voter, I would withhold the vote on the first ballot just as an acknowledgement, and then I would vote for him on the second ballot, and as long as he remained on the ballot, I'd vote for him. Well, uh, first of all, I I agree with every single thing you said, uh, because between the lines, he was one of the greatest players of all time and came from, and quite frankly, probably not the most talented, and played the game with total enthusiasm. And I know everybody, certainly in Ohio, would probably agree with you. At the same time, what he did was was terrible. But, uh, you know, the Hall of Fame probably has a lot of guys in it from the old days that probably didn't live life perfectly. So we agree with you. We're going to take another commercial break. It's Jimmy Gould with my special guest, Bob Costas. And you're listening to A Current Life, brought to you by Smart Water, Wild Things, and Mall Space uh, Network. Uh, stay tuned. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. At Wild Things, we've been making alpine clothing and packs right here in the USA since 1981. In fact... We began by stitching together extremely light climbing gear that guys on the mountain were trying to make on their own. It was a big deal in 1981, making Wild Things the gear of choice for some of the world's most demanding alpine climbers. Of course, the climbs and the climbers are now the stuff of legend. Inspiration for the next group to realize the freedom of moving over rock and ice in a fast and light way. The rest, three decades of elation, Misery, epics, and near misses, we put back into everything we make. Light, durable, functional, packable. Wild Things gear is made and tested by those who live in it. Available exclusively at wildthingsgear.com. Stay wild. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to A Current Life with Jimmy Gould. If you have a question or comment for Jimmy or his guest today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd like to send an email, the address is acurrentlife at yahoo.com. Now, back to the program. 
Welcome back to A Current Life. This is Jimmy Gould, and I'm here with Bob Costas. Uh, Bob, uh, this segment we always call The Meaning of Life, and, and since the show's about the journey, I really want to understand, I think to start with, how do you balance your personal life with your professional life, especially with all the traveling and all the, all, all the many you know, aspects of your professional life? How do you balance it? Well, it's a, a little bit of a challenge, and no one wants to hear uh, people who are fortunate and have been blessed complain. So it's not a complaint. It's just an acknowledgment of the reality. Sometimes the scheduling, the travel, the demands on your time uh, can be a little bit daunting, and you just do the best you can try and balance it and try not to let, especially all the peripheral requests, even though you'd like to fulfill all of them and be as nice a guy as you can, not let that little by little eat away all your time so that you're not spending as much time as you should with the people who matter most to you. I know uh, you were on David Letterman a number of years ago and read your own top ten list. What would you say you're, if you can kind of Take a minute and think about your 10 most memorable moments that you participated in as a broadcaster, at least a few of them. Well, in no particular order. I'm not prioritizing them, but Michael Jordan's game winner against Utah in 1998, I called that for NBC, and most people thought that that would be the final moment of Jordan's career, and had it been, it would have been the most perfect exit of any major figure in the history of American sports. And Ted Williams homered in his last time at bat, but it didn't win the World Series was a regular season game. I mean, that was perfect in every respect, so that would be on the list. Uh, I was in the Red Sox clubhouse ready to do what I thought would be the first winning Red Sox World Series interview ever since there wasn't even radio in 1918 uh, when they uh, the media might have existed, but the World Series wasn't broadcast at that point. Um, so I, then the ball went through Buckner's legs and it all unraveled. That would be on the list. I was in the corner of the Dodger dugout, when Kirk Gibson hit the home run off Dennis Eckersley in game one in 88, the miracle home run, and then jumped out on the field and interviewed Gibson afterwards. Uh, any number of Olympic moments, Muhammad Ali lighting the torch in Atlanta in 1996 would, would have to be way up there. Just on a personal basis, the first time I broadcast a game from Yankee Stadium, not that Yankee Stadium, even um, the original Yankee Stadium is greater than Fenway Park or Wrigley Field. I'm not saying that. But since I grew up as a Yankee fan and as a, as a kid, you know, kind of viewed the place as a cathedral, um, walking in there uh, as a broadcaster and calling a game from there, a game in which Reggie Jackson, as it happened, hit a home run, uh, that, would, that would have to be way up there. Sitting for interviews with people like Ted Williams and Joe DiMaggio and Hank Aaron and Willie Mays. Um, you know, the first baseball commissioner, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, uh, who I wouldn't have agreed with on everything, but he said mm -hmm. something I thought was, was right on the money, especially in the era in which he said it. He said every boy, and you could update that now to boy or girl, every boy builds a shrine to some baseball hero. And before that shrine, a candle always burns. And I think that's true, at least of people of our generation, that the, the people who had an effect on you when you were younger, those are the ones that resonate. So... If you grew up in St. Louis and you're 60 years old, even at Albert Pujols remained with the Cardinals for his whole career, you would admire and appreciate Pujols, but he could never have the same effect on you as bumping into Stan Musial because it just goes back to childhood. So the times when I've crossed paths with the Muhammad Ali's or Arthur Ashe before he left us, people like that, 
um, John Wooden. Those those things had greater meaning for me uh, than some of the more current people, most of whom I'm older than now. You know, I have great respect and admiration for many of them, but it's just not the same experience as connecting with someone who you recall following and, and admiring when you were growing up. Well, you know, as I listen to those, and I have a visual of almost the majority of those that you talked about that I witnessed and watched and even watching Kirk Gibson, you know, limp around the bases mm-hmm. did that and, you know, doing the, the great movement with his arms. Um, let me ask, there was an email uh, that was sent, um, and it says, what advice can you leave with our younger listeners that aspire to follow their dreams in life? Do you have any particular advice or words of wisdom you well, can we're offer? Talking here, if we're talking here about overall dreams and not just broadcasting, I'm going to give cliched advice that you hear from almost everybody, but things become a cliche because they have a large element of truth in them. If you can, find something that you're not only good at, but that gratifies you, something you have a real passion or affinity for, something you'd look forward to doing day in and day out, something that isn't just a job, but feels like something you'd be drawn to doing um, if you had your druthers. And if you can find that, and not everybody can, if you can find that and honestly give yourself to it and work at the craft and respect it as a craft, um, then, then you'll be rewarded, I think. Well, do you have a particular person or people that were your greatest influencers, and, and in what way did they help you develop into the kind of person that you are today? Well, and it doesn't have to be just in broadcast. No, I, just I, in everyday I understand. Life. Um, when I was at Syracuse, Uh, A professor there who is still there, uh, Stan Alton, was kind of my advisor, and he saw in me um, some ability, and he encouraged me. My dad had died when I was a senior in high school. He was only 42 years old when he died. Uh, And I think that, especially at that time, I gravitated towards someone who might have been a father figure. And then when I went to um, St. Louis shortly after that, KMOX was run by a legendary figure in broadcasting and in St. Louis circles. Uh, Bob Hyland ran KMOX, and he was extraordinarily kind to me and took me under my wing and forgave my youthful and immature mistakes or shortcomings and, and saw in me the ability to develop into something um, and kind of nurtured me along. Um, at the same time, Jack Buck was the premier broadcaster in St. Louis, and observing Jack although I think you should never copy another broadcaster. You need to be yourself. You can be influenced by the way they approach their job and the way they treat people. And I think that, that Jack was, was a great influence in that respect. And I'm leaving a whole bunch of people out. Well, uh, I, we got just maybe another minute or so. And I want to ask, uh, and I've asked every one of our guests uh, prior shows, as you look back on your life and on your journey, what do you feel is the meaning of life? I feel the question is too big for me, and if you have a guest who was able to handle that question and give you some insight, please give me their <laughs> cell phone or email information because I would like to be in touch with him or her. I am not presumptuous enough to offer to anybody, especially to faceless numbers listening in a public discussion, what my thought is on the meaning of life. I think if you figured that out, even at any age, uh, you've reached the end of the road, and I hope I haven't gotten there yet. 
Well, you know, I think a lot of times, you know, we look at our own lives and we look at them as a journey. You know, every day it's something new. And the way I look at it is it just, you know, put one foot in front of the other and just make the most out of it and uh, have faith and family and friends and things like that. Well, no one could disagree with that. I, I I will say this. I don't know if it's the overall meaning of life, but I think that we're becoming less and less, as a society, less and less compassionate more and more coarse. I like edge, and I like irreverence, but what we're getting more and more of now is just mean-spiritedness and snark. Mm-hmm. I think we can be kinder to one another, and when I say that, I'm not talking about being soft or timid or, or insipid or vapid. I'm not talking about that. You can, you can have edge, but still be a person who's basically kind and treats other people decently. You know, and I, I think we're losing some of that. Um, a little bit of compassion goes a long way. Well, you've been a, a, a wonderful host for all of us. You were greatly appreciative of your time you've given a current life today. I thank you, Bob Costas, for your time and sharing your journey with us. Uh, it's been a real honor, and I thank you. And, thank you, Jimmy. Happy holidays. Uh, thank you. And until next time, I wish each and every one of you a journey filled with hope, inspiration, success. And please tune in next Friday, 3 o'clock Eastern, for our next show. Thank you. Thanks again for joining us for A Current Life on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please tune in to another great program with your host, Jimmy Gould, next Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time. We'll see you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.